Welcome to the Life Size City Urbanism Podcast. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. This is the age of urbanism. We are thinking differently about our cities more today than we have in the past 100 years. Urban change feels inevitable for those of us who are working towards improving urban life. All over the world, cities are seeing real transformation on streets, in neighborhoods, in the quality of our green and blue spaces. It's a fascinating time to be working in urbanism and to be living in cities. Nevertheless, there is often pushback. The Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard wrote that everyone wants progress, no one wants change. There is, however, an urban development that just might be bringing about both all at once. It is a shockingly negative external factor that we would all rather be without. Terrorism. Trucks and other vehicles brutally employed to wreak havoc in cities, indiscriminately mowing down pedestrians and cyclists in cities across Europe and, increasingly, around the world. In response to this new approach, cities are hastily erecting all manner of barriers to protect vulnerable locations in attempts to prevent future attacks, or at least minimize injury and death. In addition, we're seeing an explosion in the number of surveillance cameras in the public space. I see the former in many of the cities I travel to with my work. Everything from crude cement barriers to elegant benches are put into place to stop the vehicular terror. It could be argued that this rapid transformation of the urban landscape is unprecedented. What I'm wondering is if it can be a positive development for urban life beyond protection and prevention. I decided to speak with Holly Hickson, an urban planner, writer, and researcher from Portland, Oregon. Apart from having interned for me at Copenhagen Eyes Design Company, Holly recently completed her master's thesis at the University of Amsterdam, entitled Understanding Conviviality, the Normalized Landscape of Counterterrorism in London. Conveniently, she was visiting my home in Copenhagen for a summer barbecue, so we set up a freestyle audio camp at my dining table, with friends and families sneaking in and out of the background getting ready for dinner. I started by asking her to describe the topic of her master's thesis. The changes that have been happening in public space as a reaction to terrorism and how those are affecting the livelihood or the vibrance or the conviviality of public space. Holly focused her ethnographic research on two related locations in central London, Trafalgar Square and Admiralty Arch, a part of London that sees enormous footfall from tourists but also from Londoners, although Holly identified the majority of the people as one-time users of the space. Obviously, London has thousands of CCTV Mm -hmm. cameras everywhere, and that's a really big part of their um, security agenda, I guess, is um, increasing like the symbolic types of security with having guards in public space, having cameras everywhere, and sort of giving this idea that you're being watched, kind of bringing that to the public consciousness. But they also have put in a bunch of physical security measures, large yellow arches that you can fit two people through at a time. And um, they're bolstered by huge black boulders, basically, that Mm. are all anchored into the ground. Physical impediments to trucks going through. Yeah, they're physical impediments to trucks, and they also physically alter how people are walking and the direction that they're able to take through public space. 
After the Copenhagen shooting in 2015, which resulted in two deaths by an armed, radicalized individual, the urban landscape was suddenly punctuated with heavily armed police. It was an odd thing to see in such a peaceful Danish city. Now cities like Paris and London are clearly larger targets than Copenhagen. I was nevertheless left wondering who it was all for. Assuming that it was designed to help me feel protected more than an effective tool against potential attacks. Now, you mentioned symbolic measures like CCTV cameras, uh, maybe some, some police on the streets. Uh, are, are, are these measures intended to make me feel safe? I would say that they serve sort of a dual purpose. They are intended to make people feel safer or have the presence of the possibility that they could, let's say, go up to a guard or an officer and if they felt unsafe or something like that. I mean, there are some conspiracies that perhaps these measures are made actually intending to make people feel more unsafe so that they're a bit more on edge or more complacent or these kind of ideas. It's kind of like it's both in a way, isn't yeah, it? It's kind yeah, of weird, yeah. right? An interesting thing about London is that they don't have very many armored guards either. They mm. don't have very many people with guns at all. But an interesting program that I learned about is called the Project Servitor. It's kind of an interesting, it kind of goes off on the symbolic idea, which is that they place guards in a lot of different public spaces. The guards are instructed to be friendly and to be personable and to say hi to as many people as they can and hand out a postcard or offer directions or all these kind of different things. Do a selfie with one of the tourists. And the idea is that you're supposed to see them and you'll be like, okay, I'm not going to, maybe this is not the best spot for me to, maybe it's it's a bit more secured if you're a potential hostile person or someone that you were actually thinking about doing some sort of terrorist act in this space, you might be deterred. But then on top of that, the all the different servitors that are in the space are meant to look at other people. So if you walk into a public space and this guy says, hey, how are you? Other guards are looking at you and seeing how you're reacting to that. Uh-huh. So they are actually able to catch people. They've caught someone in the last, I think it was in the last year, maybe even six months, that was actually partaking in hostile reconnaissance, which is walking through a public space and determining the security level. Basically what I was doing for my research, but (laughs) in a hostile way, they actually caught someone this way because he was either uncomfortable or they kind of like were flagged at his like bizarre encounter with the servitors. Mm -hmm. So they are trying to be really friendly and nice and supposed to make the space lively in that way and make you feel safe. But then they all also are serving this other... And another thing is that with the Servitor program, the surrounding businesses are also instructed on how to deal with if anyone comes in and says, huh, what's up with those security guards out there? The people that are working in the coffee shop or whatever it is are meant to say, oh yeah, it's this cool program where this and this and this, and just show support of it and sort of creating a culture of security where everyone is keeping their eye on this space or understanding that perhaps someone is asking a question that you know, maybe leads to some larger interest or, you know, that kind of thing. So I find this to be fascinating and to be completely honest, a bit spooky. Just the name Servitor sounds like a combination of Orwellian and Hollywood marketing. It's amazing to learn that there's this whole gameplay in place where people have been instructed to employ a common narrative about the security measures in London. I was prepared to talk about the physical barriers that cities are erecting, but I wasn't quite finished with this psychological aspect just yet. Did you feel safe in these spaces in London? Well, I would say doing this research and looking deep into this topic, I wouldn't 
say I feel that safe in almost any public space that has a lot of people in it. I, not that I feel actively unsafe. I just, I feel like I'm maybe tainted to the idea that, that any public space in a big city, especially London, like will, could be, and likely would be the target of terrorism. And so that is kind of always in my mind, but they also had multiple levels of security happening. Like there's event staff and there's all these people that are sort of upholding this culture of security, I guess. Um, I don't know. I think I did talk to a lot of people. That was part of my research. And a lot of people said that they felt very safe in it, in the space. And even people said, oh, I didn't even notice the security measures or yeah, sure. The cameras take a little getting used to, but I moved here a year ago and now I'm just used to seeing them everywhere. And I kind of feel safer because of them, which right. is kind of an interesting thing. Are we getting used to the fact that, oh, there's cameras, there's a dude with a you know semi-automatic gun and a bulletproof vest standing there and smiling and handing out postcards or whatever the dude yeah. is doing? Do you think that people are getting used to this quicker? Yes. It's almost scary how I think people are used to it because obviously you and I are urbanists and we are constantly looking at a space, like a public space anywhere in the world, and we're trying to pick out the peculiar things about it or how people are interacting with the space or how they're interacting with um, each other in a space, which is what I really wanted to see. And so for me or you looking at a space, you're just like, oh my gosh, this huge yellow arch is so ugly. And why is it here? And you know, what is that doing for the space? But what I found after watching thousands and thousands of people, one of the days was during the London Marathon and the and the exit of the London Marathon was at Admiralty Arch. So there were literally thousands of people over the course of the day passing through. And I was really shocked to see how few people made any sort of curious gesture, made any comment to each other. I would say probably 10 people out of thousands, maybe a handful of people made a comment or a vis visible gesture toward the huge physical security measures that they're walking straight the through. The boulders, the concrete, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're being filed into lines, straight up, like filed into a line mm -hmm. one by one by one and like waiting and waiting. People are queuing up like they're at Disneyland. Just and to get just, through the arch or yeah, to get through the security measures. Yeah, just to get to the other spot. And they right. had no sort of, no, barely anyone said anything about it. There's no, uh, there's no airplane that's leaving in uh, in 40 minutes that you have yeah. to get to the gate, right? So there's it, it maybe a different dynamic. Yeah, I yeah. just got to get over to that space over there. I got to line up fine. But yeah. uh, but it's, so maybe it's a little bit different, but still. So you're saying people are just like, yeah, this is the new reality in, uh, yeah. in our cities. Yeah, I feel that people actually have internalized security as part of the natural consequence of being in public in a way. that The other thing is a lot of the um, theory out there in academia says that these things make spaces super sterile and make people feel afraid. And I was really expecting to see that, to see people being afraid or feeling strange about like walking through these really intense arches with the camera pointing down at them, a huge camera. And there was one woman who said something where she said, I hate those cameras up there. They just stare down at you like they're better than you. But that was the only person who truly said anything about it. If anything, people were only frustrated that they had to wait in a line, but not because it's not anything about them being in danger or feeling afraid or anything. And all the people I talked to, they also were just like, oh yeah, we're safer here because of their, all these different measures. And Is that positive or negative that we're pretty complacent about it, that we're going, yeah, cameras, security guards, you know, guys with guns, that's just our new reality? It's complicated because I did have a meeting with um, 
the head of physical security at the Center for the Protection of National Infrastructure. And those are, that's the... That's um, a big business card name. Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that is the place that takes care of all of these different things throughout the UK. One of the struggles that they face, like people that are working in counterterrorism, something that they struggle with is trying to convince governments to invest in these kind of technologies and also to convince the public sort of without scaring them. One of the major things I think is a big barrier to like keeping people safe, I guess, is people not knowing the technology or people not fully understanding like the risk that they're in, I guess. So I would say that maybe it is a negative thing that people are just, it's good that people are accepting it in a way, but I don't know. I can't mm. really decide, I guess, because there's one part of me that feels really afraid in a way mm -hmm. that says like, well, wow, actually we should all be terrified and like should be really like letting them put anything in the public space. Mm -hmm. And there's another part of me that's like, you know, a lot more people maybe die from obesity or car crashes or, you know, a lot of other things that right. perhaps are actually more dangerous. Now, this is not a podcast about the evolution or even the deterioration of our modern media culture. But yeah, millions die in other brutal and preventable ways. But one moron in a truck in Nice, Berlin, Stockholm, captures the headlines in a news cycle and, as a result, instills a culture of fear upon us, one that has far-reaching implications for our societies. Prevention and protection are the goals, but they are just the tip of the iceberg in this psychological transformation of public space. Living here in Copenhagen, I have seen how the city has responded preventatively to potential terror attacks. I wanted to hear about the decision-making background that resulted in the city working towards avoiding such attacks. What choices the city made when determining how to react. So, I went for a walk in the city center with Morton Cable. Morton was a municipal politician for 20 years and served for four years until December 2017 as the mayor in charge of the Technical and Environmental Administration. The Copenhagen DOT for Transport and Parks. It was a warm and blustery day, and we sat, appropriately, on a bench on Rainbow Square next to City Hall for a chat about the city's terrorism prevention efforts. I wondered what he thought about the British approach, where pedestrians are funneled into public spaces and surveillance cameras dominate the landscape. Already Copenhagen has a lot of surveillance. I think we have to admit, admit that. And it, to some extent it proved its worth. After the attack um, on Kutun and the synagogue uh, a few years ago. The Copenhagen shooting. The Copenhagen shooting. Because actually they were able to catch the perpetrator uh, earlier on than they otherwise would have been because of the video surveillance. But I don't think we'll see Copenhagen going in these, in many ways, absurd directions as British cities have done. I, I remember one of the responsibles for security in Glasgow telling me at one point, but we don't prevent crime. We just make sure that it can be solved and we catch the perpetrators faster than we otherwise could have. And I think that was a really good lesson for me. Mm. Uh, because, of course, it's always good to catch the perpetrator, but I really want to prevent the crime being done instead. Um, that's the best way to do it. And so, both, if both if possible. And both yeah. if possible, yeah. of course. Um, so what we have aimed to do in Copenhagen is to say, how much can we actually prevent uh, by still keeping the city spirit alive? And there is... It has been a unanimous city council saying that 
Um, we don't create a smart city, we don't create a good city by creating a city like in 1984, where the state and, and city government knows where you are at all times. That's none of the city's business, business at all. So we don't want a surveillance, surveillance city. 1984 was a warning, not a recipe book. You see it in cities across Europe. Obstructions put into place in public spaces populated with many users, like squares and pedestrian streets. Some interventions are demonstrative, others more subtle, but it is clearly the new normal for European cities. I'm looking for a pattern, or maybe more of a design manual. This is a thing, and will be for a very long time. But what works? What doesn't? How is it impacting our cities? So, I mean, what, what is the effect on city life now that so many cities are implementing physical, hard, physical, concrete barriers to protect areas with a lot of footfall? Is this a positive effect uh, or a negative effect? Terrorism, the idea is that it's supposed to undermine democracy and in a lot of ways undermine the feeling of com being comfortable out in public. And sometimes I think planning for terrorism can also have a similar effect and actually kind of undermine possibly the sociability of a space. But I also think that people are pretty creative in, in public. And one thing I saw a lot of was these huge ugly barriers. Yes, it's negative on the aesthetic front for sure. From my perspective, it's all a lot of the measures that have happened are really unattractive, but sometimes they create like a makeshift chair or a, a spot for you to sit and eat your lunch or something. Like where, what I saw a lot of was a lot of people did kind of have a brush with other types of people as they're walking through the thing or, you know, sitting, just deciding to sit on the barrier because there wasn't anywhere else to sit in the public space. Or in Amsterdam, one thing I've noticed a lot is these huge uh, blocks are in the damn square but the damn square has no other um, no other seating at all. So these are just acting as seats and people now have a place to sit and actually can hang out and feel more comfortable. So I think it can be done in a way that is aesthetically pleasing. It's just we're kind of ironing out the engineering of that because there is also a lot of really particular things about how deep a bollard goes into the ground or how heavy something is or what it's attached to and trees don't stop cars and all these things and there are tons of actually like engineering technicalities that go into what happens but not our problem yeah. the engineers will figure that stuff yeah. out but in a way like you know on the street um you know i wonder like what the effect is i've yeah there are so many things to think about Copenhagen worked quickly and effectively and harvested good ideas from abroad when figuring out their solutions. What does Morton think about the kind of interventions that London and British cities are working with? Were there any discussions when you were mayor and you were all talking about how to protect the pedestrian streets, which we have a lot of in, in Copenhagen, of, of making kind of a like a metro entrance, you know, where you, you, you funnel pedestrians into uh, narrow entranceways to give them access to the pedestrian streets, like they have done in Edinburgh uh, and as well in, uh, in London. There were never any kind of discussions in Copenhagen about creating a solution, like you say, in Edinburgh and London, about funneling people in, because that would scare people. 
and that will destroy the city whilst you're protecting it. That's not the aim, and that was never the aim. I think I had a really good cooperation with police and national security authorities in saying that in order to protect the city, we need to keep the city. We need to keep the city spirit alive. And by creating these airport-type barriers, then you'll destroy the city spirit. And that's not what this is all about. You don't protect the city by destroying it. Okay, I'm learning about how London and Copenhagen have been doing things, but I find myself staring at these urban transformations in cities all over Europe. I found myself in Paris, a city very much focused on street life and conviviality. It is also one of the cities that has been most impacted by terrorism. In addition, it's a city that I know very well. Where in London physical barriers are often large and obvious, the efforts in Paris are more subtle. Parisians have responded to the violent attacks by demonstratively continuing to claim the public space. I met up with a friend of mine, Charles Magan, for a chat about bicycle urbanism. Charles is a prominent bicycle advocate and well-versed in urbanist matters in his city. We sat ourselves down on the sofa in the living room of my hotel room with some coffee. I was wondering, has he seen a lot of changes in the French capital? Yes. Uh... Let's remember that Paris was one of the cities that has been most uh, badly striking by uh, terror attacks. Uh, And just next to this hotel is the uh, Bataclan uh, restaurant and bar. Uh, So the thing is, they built a very new bicycle lane just in front of the Bataclan. But because there had been uh, terror attacks on the Bataclan, they decided that they should uh, narrow the, the bicycle lane to 80 centimeters at this point, where the rest of the street is two meters wide. So it, it shows they, they, they implement stuff that I think personally that are completely useless uh, to prevent such attacks. And yet at the same time, just 20 meters away from there, there is a, a delivery place uh, for, for big trucks that could bring uh, terrorists to, to, to make a terror attack. Uh, the Republic, um, uh, just the Republic place just next to it is also completely surrounded by uh, benches, which are actually um, uh, anti-bellier. Uh, they tried to make it look like it's benches, but it's actually it's, it's really for preventing uh, terror attacks on, on this large and uh, very popular place. Uh, and they are so uh, intensely uh, positioned around the, the place that it makes like an island again, which was precisely uh, the reason why it was modified heavily not to make it an island. Now it's difficult to, to go with your bicycle on this place, um, although it was the, the designed uh, idea behind the, the new uh, organization of this place. So it's... I'm a little a bit saddened by this because I think it's useless and it doesn't help with the city. I think it doesn't work and it, uh, un- well, let's say this, uh, let's put it differently. It annoys millions of people to prevent something that it won't prevent. What I have been exploring is whether or not these facilities to prevent terror in cities have had a positive effect on urbanism. In some cities, I would think 
it has because it has made the pedestrian spaces safer. It has restricted cars generally from entering them. But you're saying in Paris... Okay, let's take a a positive example because Mm -hmm. I I can think of one. Uh, They removed all parking places in front of uh, public buildings and schools. So it reduced (laughs) uh, surface parking, Mm -hmm. which from my point of view is good. Mm -hmm. But it's very small contribution, uh, I think, uh, in in face of all the thing that has been made, I think, worse for people walking or cycling because of uh, this crazy uh, fear of terror attacks. Okay, so there are some band-aids that have been yeah. put on the streets, but generally mobility has been affected negatively. I think so, yes. So, Paris has some pluses and minuses on its account. There are clearly some cultural differences in the perception of public space. The French famously cherish it and try to protect it. The British have been moving towards more controlled spaces. Still, I'm trying to figure out a recipe, as it were. I asked Holly if she thought that physical barriers, if you do it right, can be a positive development for cities. Yeah, I I do think so. And on top of that, another thing is that because the terrorism is taking the form of often hostile vehicles, that it it's creating a need for exclusively pedestrian, exclusively bike spaces, I guess. Because mm. a lot of spaces, they're just closing off to cars completely. Or if you go across, um, if you were to go across the Westminster Bridge where an attack happened in 2017, it used to be just four car lanes or three car lanes and then two little sidewalks on either side, this huge, like, quick place and now they have these like entirely protected side both sides i guess just because a car like ran down the side of the pedestrian walkway and just like you know hit a lot of people so it has made them literally have protected bike lanes now and protected pedestrian walkways on this bridge so that changes the dynamic of the bridge as well copenhagen seems intent on maintaining the same dynamic in a way they already have for example protected cycle tracks unlike much of london many of the interventions have seemed to me like in Paris, subtle. Was that the goal? Especially what we saw in Nice uh, really made it it very important to say, okay, we need to protect uh, our pedestrian areas, we need to protect the squares. Um, But also made us realize that you can't prevent an attack, but you can prevent the attack from going really bad. And, uh, for instance, we're sitting on a square that is being, uh, in many ways, uh, secured, but you can't really see it. And you can just see that there are benches, there are trees, there are some uh, urban furniture that relates to the architecture of the square. Um, So it actually maintains the spirit of the uh, rainbow square we are sitting on, uh, even though today it's probably a prime target for anybody. It's an LTTB center, it's uh, near City Hall. I mean, it would look good on anybody's uh, account if you have these vicious uh, thoughts, but it's uh, it's being secured. So it's a small square in, you know, by Copenhagen standards, uh, kind of a triangular shape. There are cafes with outdoor seatings. Uh, there are bike racks as well. How did the city protect this square? Can you describe it? Well, interestingly enough, you mentioned the bike racks. They are part of uh, securing the square because the bike racks are subtly founded in the, in the ground. So are the benches that you can sit up and enjoy. Uh, there are a couple of concrete or granite blocks. Basically, I think most of the people sitting here and enjoying a, a beer or a coffee would never 
even think about that this is actually more secure than it was three years ago. But some dude with a like a, a semi-trailer truck uh, with a lot of horsepower and a lot of weight behind it, he could blow through these Copenhagen benches and maybe even a bike rack uh, if, if he wanted to. I don't get how that is uh, preventative. He would, uh, and he probably could. Uh, the point here that is that it would make so much noise that people could get away. And that, I think, is the main part of this. That we cannot prevent this maniac with a truck from driving onto a square. What we can prevent it is from having very serious consequences. And the moment that you actually uh, head into bike rack or a block of granite, then it'll create a lot of noise, a lot of attention. People can get away. And that's the main point of this. I was just about to say, to help with the physical damage to the square. That doesn't matter. But can it can create so much noise that the, uh, the people on this uh, square can actually get away uh, from the truck. Then we are good. I mean, what we saw in Stockholm was actually that uh, the truck there hit some of the urban furniture and created a lot of noise, making uh, a lot of people aware. And they were able to flee and get away. And they weren't damaged. Still, five people were killed. But the amount that would have been that would have been killed if nothing had been there would have been so much higher. So in many ways, their terror prevention worked to a very large degree. That's interesting. The Barcelona attack on the Rambla in Barcelona. Uh, I am no expert in this at all, but it is just one long pedestrian stretch without any barriers in the middle. So the guy just popped up onto the sidewalk, onto the the pedestrian plaza, and just drove straight down there. So if they're in this theory that we're talking about, I mean, if there were more benches and, and barriers, he would have created more noise and maybe more people could have escaped. The truck would have uh, been slowed down uh, in itself, uh, making it safer. Uh, yes, and that, that thing was the big strategy of Barcelona, that they hadn't uh, been, been there in time. So they hadn't done the prevention in time that they could have had. I remember being in Barcelona one week before the attack on the Rambla, and there's a pedestrian street parallel to it, and there were some barriers, there were four trucks with heavily armed police standing there looking around, uh, and they didn't strike there. They struck on the Rambla, which is a, the most iconic place yep. to strike, uh, and there was, there was very little put into place on <laughs> the, 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 the stretch where most people actually walk. Um, so I, yeah, I, I found uh, that to be a little bit odd, and again, I am absolutely no expert in this whatsoever. But there is no doubt that uh, seen in, well, what is always 2020 hindsight, then that is the, uh, the, the biggest uh, disaster for Barcelona that they hadn't put it in place at the Rambla, which was an obvious place. So this is clearly a thing. Cities are reacting to attacks or even just to the threat. I asked Holly what the general tendency is among cities. Um, I think London has a really interesting approach because it's layered in so many ways and it's symbolic and it's physical and it's mental and all these sort of ideological um, factors kind of trying to make the space more safe in one of the most busy cities in the world. Mm -hmm. I've researched in Amsterdam a little bit. And like I said, Dam Square has had those barriers put up. It seems to be making it a bit more safe, although there's still a bike lane that is not protected in any way, just on the street. And, you know, the fact that, <laughs> that Amsterdam and Copenhagen have, have done things and other cities in the UK and Scotland, stuff like that, they have done things and they haven't been directly affected by it. And I would say that that kind of shows you the overall feeling in Europe toward security. And um, the conversation I had with the guy from CPNI, he also said that it's really easy to, to talk with 
the European governments about this and people are really receptive to it because it's always in the news. It's always in people's mind. Whereas in the US and in North America, he said it's a lot more difficult to convince city governments and stuff to invest in this kind of technologies or even an infrastructure that will protect their spaces because it's like, oh, it happened in Berlin or, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. and in the US, there hasn't been tons of examples in recent years. The week after I had this conversation, the the, was when the Toronto attack happened, Mm. which um, of course, a lot of the terrorism that I studied is, is specifically jihadist terrorists, but terrorism, it, the form of terrorism in a hostile vehicle that happened in, in Toronto by a different form of terrorist group, you know, it's a type of warfare, you know, and it's not, doesn't matter if where they're from, it, it, it's still the same type of attack that happens, I think, that makes it important to note. But yeah, that happened in Toronto the week after. And I think that added a bit to the North American idea of, okay, this is happening in North America now. So it's happened in New York. Now it's happened in Toronto. You know, I think it might be, maybe the wheels are turning a bit more now. Do you think that the terror prevention barriers that have been put up all over Copenhagen, do they have a positive uh, effect on the city? In many parts of the city, they do. We see that in Nyhavn, the uh, the small harbor with lots of cafes and bars where people are outside drinking, that the terror prevention there is actually bar desks. They have put wood outside the, uh, the the concrete barriers and put up small, small desks so people hang out there, stand there with their beers, having a good time. I think... 99% of the people there will never notice that this is actually terror prevention. Uh, and that is such as actually creating more of an urban life, more of this special Copenhagen spirit that we see. And I think the same thing goes for a lot of those squares where you suddenly have huge flower pots. People are seeing a more colorful city. They don't see terror prevention. Now people can see that you can either go about and securing every single small winding street uh, with barriers or flower pots or whatever, or you can actually take a whole area and just do a perimeter uh, secure, secure situation. And the perimeter solution is a lot cheaper, a lot more aesthetically nice, and as such much more attracting to Copenhageners and budget makers alike. Mm-hmm. Um, so today there is a much larger understanding of the need of making Copenhagen Centre car-free. We're not there yet, but actually I think in a couple of years' time that'll be the solution the City Hall will uh, will make. The form that terrorism is taking in this like moment will is just one passing form, but perhaps the barriers and the things that have been erected that protect cyclists and pedestrians or closing streets off from from cars that could stay forever and maybe actually make the spaces continue on in, in better ways. But I do think that the there needs to be a bigger understanding, I guess, by architects and by urban planners to make these m- materials a bit more aesthetically pleasing and to actually improve the public space. Like take this kind of predicament that we're in and use it as much as you can to be a positive thing for the space, you know, make it into seating, make it into a little tray table, make it into public art or public furniture and all these different things. So I think it does have a positive trajectory, but right now it's in its infancy. Is it still in its infancy? There are so many, like the cities that I've traveled to just this year alone, like I said, this year. I mean, there are barriers everywhere. Well, there is one perspective also that's sort of, I guess, a curious thought to have and maybe like a thought provoking thing. I'd be curious what you think about this, but there is this sort of security is sort of taking the spontaneity 
out of public space though. Mm. Like in filing people into these long lines that they have to pass through this thing where there can be a directly a camera like pointing at them and see who every single person is that comes in and out of the space. Like these sort of measures, they do strip a bit of spontaneity from the space, mm. you know, perhaps. Perhaps. Like the, the one in Admiralty Arch, like the arch is like that intense and maybe a turnstile, that kind of thing. They do file people into more of a controllable, like not spontaneous direction of movement. So I don't know if I think that's necessarily a good thing for the public space. Right. Yeah. I just think it's going to take a few years before people reclaim all of these ugly barriers and make them their own and sort of become part of like a, a beautiful cityscape or become part of the urban landscape in a, in a more beautiful and aesthetically pleasing way. But I do think overall that it is, and I also believe in the cause of protecting people against this sort of terrorism and this type of terrorism and stuff. So I do think that it is positive for public space in a lot of ways. We are not presented with many opportunities to view terrorism and the constant threat of it in a positive light. But this rapid transformation of our cities just might be one. We are traffic calming. We are creating safer areas for pedestrians and cyclists and children. And we're thinking seriously about how to restrict the number of cars in our city centers. The jury is out, it would seem, about the ultimate design approach. Britain is keen on developing controlled public spaces with surveillance and a complicated and mysterious security agenda. New York made some massive rookie mistakes after a terrorist drove a truck onto a bike path by blocking it off for the users. A negative, knee-jerk reaction. Paris and Spanish cities, as well as cities like Copenhagen, seem intent on both protecting lives as well as the quality of life and the essence of their cities. It would seem to me that if we do it well, we have a golden opportunity to turn terrorism prevention into a massive win for urbanism and the lives of our citizens, not just in the moment an attack might strike, but for decades into the future. You've been listening to The Life-Sized City, my podcast about urbanism and urban change. As ever, this episode was produced thanks to red wine and coffee. The music was composed by Phil Creamer. Check out his website at www.hereonout.ca. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Thanks for listening.